source self is connected to source completely confident in your relation to source, giving you energy, giving you power, giving you life, you know your invulnerability. You know that the physical world does not define you in any kind of a way. Right. So I just looked at this quote from Viktor Frankl who talks about suffering. Here's the quote. If there is a meaning in life at all, then there must be a meaning in suffering. Suffering is irradical part of life, even as fate and death. Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. The way in which a human accepts his fate and all the suffering it entails, the way in which he takes up his cross, gives him ample opportunity, even under the most difficult circumstances, to add a deeper meaning to his life. It may remain brave, dignified, and unselfish. Or, in the bitter fight for self-preservation, he may forget his human dignity and become no more than an animal. Here lies the chance for a man either to make use or to forego the opportunities of attaining the moral values that a difficult situation may afford him. And, his, and this decides whether he is worthy of his suffering or not. Such men are not only in concentration camps. Everywhere man is confronted with fate, with the chance for achieving something through his own suffering. And there's many great quotes like that, um, you know, where he goes on and on about talking about suffering. And I, I read this book. I was involved in a relationship with someone for three years uh, who was suffering, was very full of anger and rage that fate was bringing down the suffering on their head. This person suffered, and, and as I observed it closely, it seemed to be self-inflicted. Uh, almost entirely self-inflicted and it was this refusal to face suffering refusal to you know it was just so deeply unfair that I'm being made to suffer you know what I mean in terms of the polyvagal theory it really closed down the cognitive ability made the suffering that much worse because now it's it's just unfair that I should suffer and I'm not going to tolerate anybody bringing more suffering into my life I've, I've reached my limit I can't take it anymore right rather than and seeking I, I'm just like it was just so much craziness you know and it it manifests in just the most bizarre behaviors and I remember one time we went to a church service the sermon was about how we find meaning through suffering okay Where was this? this was in New Hampshire and oh. Manchester and uh, something about suffering, you know, as being redeeming and some... 
And I, I wouldn't say it was a great sermon. Victor Frankl did a, does a much better job of of articulating this message. But this particular um, sermon this pastor gave was attempting to you know put this idea out there. But and I have to admit that it it came across as being. Pollyannish, or just like a like a you know, oh, we're just going to ignore suffering and pretend that it's not there, kind of thing, and and so it wasn't a great sermon. My wife at the time is in her polyvagal shutdown mode, and and her angst was about I'm suffering, I'm I'm being made to suffer. It's society that's doing this to me. It's other people who are doing this to me, and I'm not about to sit here and have a Christian so-called preacher tell me that suffering is okay because that's just part of the problem. That's part of what's wrong with the society. And she just blew up and could not, ex- and got up and walked out and couldn't take it. Okay, and I kind of understand that. I really do because when when you're in this Christian church environment and people are just trying to smile and be happy and it's just so fake and uh, you know what I mean. And so she was about being real. But the, and there's nothing wrong with being real, and there's someone else we know who'd like to promote this idea of being real, and and I'm all about being real. But I think that once you understand this polyvagal thing, then it really puts a whole everything that we're talking about here in terms of people being Pollyannish and people being real, and this conflict of when you talk about suffering and some people react to it like, how dare you say suffering is meaningful? You know what I mean? And my suffering is not meaningful. I reject suffering. I do not want to suffer. Baba, I've had enough suffering. I'm suffering because of this and that. And the other person, blame, 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 blame. And this is like a real phenomenon that affects a lot of people, Meryl. This is like a huge deal. It's gigantic. I mean, it's at the core of the meaning crisis, it seems to me. And so, now from the course perspective, uh, you know, you encountered... Victor Frankel before you encountered the, the course. course. Right. So you started to like uh, now he went through the concentration camp of the Nazi but when he came out he uh, he was informed by that experience to take what he was already working with which is mm-hmm. a kind of a new kind of therapy mm-hmm. and then he called that logos therapy I believe. Right. right. And so um, this was this was differentiated from what uh, other um Psychologists sort of were doing reflective therapy. Why? Hmm. Why do I do? There, there, in psychology, there kept being expressed a um, a will to this, a will to that. And Victor, Victor Frankl's idea was that there was a will to meaning, right? As opposed to Nietzsche and his right. will to power, right? And a will to absurdity. <laughs> Have you ever encountered the? Um, Nietzsche's um, three stages of uh, transformation of the individual. The first one being uh, it's a, some kind of metaphor he attempted. And it, the first one was a camel, and the second was a lion, and then the third was a baby. The first impression I have this Nietzsche in um, three stages of spiritual development to me is like, okay, this is just meaningless. If I were to plug in his metaphor into my three stages of spiritual development and try to draw some parallels, there are some interesting things that come out. For example, um, I'm saying that at stage one of spiritual development, you have uh, what I'm calling structure. This is when people are trying to grow up. They're, they're still in the process of learning what it means to be an adult. And, and 
So they're growing up, they're in structure, their core value is good. Okay. Now this corresponds to Nietzsche's camel. And the idea of the camel is that you, are, you carry a burden and that society puts a burden on you and that you feel quite happy to carry the burden. You know, it's like the submissive wife, right? She's, she's willing to let the husband rant and rave about whatever, and she's just going to be there just to repeat and support, and she's the camel. She plays the role of the camel, okay? And so society uh, has set up these structures. Um, we call it education, and that is designed to teach you to become a camel, to carry the weight, of, be a pack animal, to carry the weight, and to find some kind of you know meaning in this that you are that you are a pack animal and your job is to support, you know, the society in some way and what have you. Okay, fine. So you have that as your level one. But then, in the Nietzschean idea is the second level is the lion. Okay, and the lion does battle with the dragon. And the dragon is, has all these rules to follow and stuff like that. And as a camel, you're quite willing to submit to the rules and follow the rules because that's what gives you meaning etc. But then as a lion, you start to transform from the camel to the lion. And as a lion, now you're uh, opposing the dragon and all of his dictates and demands. And you're able to find the courage within yourself to boldly say, no, this second level then kind of corresponds to what I'm calling skepticism. And that's like this, um, you know, the second level of spiritual awareness where you rise up and say, okay, I'm not believing what I've been told up until this point, I'm starting to question it. You know, they tell me the world is round. I'm not believing that. I'm going to explore the possibility that we're living on a flat earth under a dome. Or I'm just using that as an example. It's silly, I know. But um, the point is that there is, it, it, it's healthy to cast off the traditions of the past and, and, un, and, and be able to think differently. And even if you're going down the wrong path initially, maybe you have the wrong conclusions, at least you're breaking free. You're becoming a lion. You're saying no. You're not a camel. You're not content to be the camel. You're not content to be the pack animal that's just going to pack on beliefs, one belief after the other, right? It's just weighing you down. And so as a lion, you're not putting other people's beliefs and other people's bullshit on your back anymore. Now you've transformed into the lion and you're able to have some detached autonomy and you're able to say, okay, I've had enough of this and, uh, and you roar at the dragon and the dragon who's up until now been dictating to you what to believe and what to think and what to do and what to feel all that. Now it's, it, 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 it goes away. You've scared it off. And now you're truly sovereign and independent and autonomous. And as the lion, that's who you are. But then Nietzsche brings in the third metaphoric idea, and that is becoming the child. Now, I think this is the great insight um, because it's counterintuitive. How do you go from camel to the lion and what would you think would be next? The, the, what we think you would become is the dragon itself. Like, you know, you take on that personality because that seems to be the natural progression, right? But Nietzsche's saying, no, you have to become the child. In order to become the uberman, the superman, you have to, you have to then regress back to a child. Now, what is he saying here? You know, going back to, to being innocent? That's an interesting idea. The idea of, of, of going back to being um, in this infant state of, like, it's like starting over. 
So this idea then, as you move into the third level of mysticism, the third level of spirituality, which I'm calling mysticism, this is the being mode. So you've gone from having and doing. The camel is focused on um, having meaning by what it does, right? And the, the lion is this transformative period where it casts off that and then it opens the way for the being mode. And once you step into the being mode, Nietzsche is saying you start with being a child. Mm. If you want to be an uberman, if you want so to be a super child, yeah, that's an interesting. I mean, I never, you know, I've always heard about Nietzsche's mm. idea of the superman or the ubermish, but but to say that that starts by you know this transformation of the human being into something more than what we've ever known throughout history, that the human race is going to there's going to be a biological and psychological uh, emergent phenomenon that's going to bring about a new human being or perhaps we as i would say we we become fully human but he makes the point that it starts by becoming a child again and i'm like oh okay that's interesting so you've gone through the stage one you've gone of of believing stuff you've gone through the stage two of 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 unbelieving stuff letting go unlearning relinquishing uh, all the garbage so now that through these two stages you're prepared now for stepping into this third stage but it necessitates becoming like a child. Interesting. What are your thoughts? Well, I have never had a chance to really study this whole inner child theory, so I hear it alluded to, but I exactly what it means and how you would approach it. But now, with the polyvagal theory, we're starting to hear it alluded to again, and I realize what it means is the inner child always feels insecure. The inner child needs security at base. And guess what? The root chakra at base is that chakra which all else depends on for development, for arising in consciousness. And the inner child has a chakra system. You know, and the inner child is not to be dismissed because it's to say we don't want to see ourselves as vulnerable. We want to see ourselves as mature and able to take care of ourselves. But we are, you know, what we have always been in the physical. We have a mind that is developing. We have conceptualizations of the world that are developing. And we we are out of touch with who we are on the other side, in reality, with our higher self. So all we know is our lower self, and our lower self is vulnerable and developing. We remember its development. We remember its having been chastised and in trouble and in pain and in every kind of vulnerability and insecurity through the years. We still remember those things, and that's our lower self is the inner child, in a way. It's the need to stand in enough space, have, have, have space to be, to take care of itself, to believe in itself, to hope for itself, that it can reach out of the mud, stand in the mud and reach toward the stars, which the stars are literally where your higher self 
is. You've got to transmogrify from, you know, the mud to the stars in your lifetime. You have to be able to reach and develop your chakras as open your chakras, finally your heart chakra, your crown chakra. Be able to become who you are. You're not becoming anything else, but but aligning with who you really are from a point of ignorance, completely not knowing, not guessing, and not even caring who you are. Let me just say that the more knowledge you accumulate and the more certain you become about who you are and what the quote-unquote real world is, uh, is more ignorance. Because you don't it know... It usually is. It's compounding. It's making that's, it worse. That seems to be true. So what I'm seeing here is that in this story of the camel becoming the lion and then the child... This is not reverting back to the vulnerable child. This is a new child. This is a, a, a child of being, a child yeah, without pain child and has vulnerability. To transition from the mm. earth life mm. that you know, the right. physical, to the non physical, the formless, back to the formless. So this is a, this is a returning to, to a childhood of, of innocence and. and and being a student or a learner or a pupil from without thinking that you know anything, you've, you've dismissed this certainty. You're detached from all of that's led to this point. You're no longer vulnerable. You're no longer fragile, but you're starting fresh. And so this is necessary. But, uh, but this is not the same thing people talk about when they talk about doing inner child work. They're, they're just going back and rehashing the pain, it seems to me. And that's getting them nowhere. You know, it's the shadow work that you talk about. People. Yeah, I, I just don't find that we have to regress and uncover where we buried the pain at. We have to find it in the cracks. Where did it go? <laughs> Pull it out, see if we can extract it. You know, the, the, the awareness that it can be released is enough. Mm-hmm. If, you know, it's at our choice at our behest. It, we, can, we can simply depart in peace from it. And this is the belief that is being taught about the pain body and about I, I, all, all of this shadow self is that, no, I can't be free of it. I can't depart from it. It's going to straitjacket me until I absolutely take it down totally. And that's going to take, you know, all I can do just to try to take care of myself. This is like a self-care thing, operation I've got to do alone, in separation. I don't have anybody to understand me, to direct me, to help me, unless well, I can get in some kind of a group of other people that are also trying to dismantle their pain. But when you notice what they're doing, these people are projecting, not dismantling. They're projecting their pain outward, and who's there but you? Right. I mean, the I gave the example of my wife being someone who was just so felt that it was unfair and that that she'd suffered and that blaming everyone, but really it's projecting it out there and it's like bouncing off the wall and hitting her. You are not going to heal. See, this is the irrational thing is I I will get rid of my pain by projecting it away from me and believing that it's somewhere else and somebody else and something else. Right. That doesn't heal anything. No, it doesn't. And with the understanding of the polyvagal theory, you realize that 
it, the person who's doing that is already compromised in their cognitive ability. It's already like a there's already been some uh, some erosion of, of common sense. Right, because this is taking you down to the diminishing returns. You're going down the slippery path already. Yeah, cognitive narrowing. Yeah, so this is the problem. So in order to do the the cognitive reciprocal opening, then um, as I use the Nietzschean form, you have the camel who's quite content to, be, to bear the burdens of other people's beliefs. And then the lion that says, enough of that, I'm shaking it off, I'm, I'm rejecting that, and says no. And then entering into the child and saying, okay, I'm not going to wallow in the pain of the past or the blame or projecting or any of that. I'm a child now and I'm safe as a child. This is the key thing about the Nietzschean child is it's, it's now safe because it's, it's, it got rid of the dragon. The dragon has been dispatched. And once the dragon is dispatched, you can then enter into being the child because there's no longer uh, existential threat. You can, be, you can be safe to grow and mature and nurture your own development in a healthy, loving process. Well, th- this is an interesting theory, but is it true? Can you be safe if you're still alone, if you're still isolated, because you believe in essential separation? Mm-hmm. You are absolutely devoted to the idea of your separation. Yeah. Well, there you put your finger on the dynamite right there. That's what blows you up. The lion's roar that dispatches the dragon, it is an interesting theory. That's only part of the problem. That's the problem of the things that you perceived as being um, external to you that were that you could blame for your misery or whatever, and being able to then separate from that uh, allows you to become the child and, and innocent and grow and and. But as you point out, uh, these things are not external problems that you're facing. You might see it that way. The ego wants to see it that way, but really the. the the false authority ultimately is the ego itself and that uh, uh, being bought into this um, uh, preconceived idea of separation. And as long as that resides within you, as long as you're hosting this idea of separation, you're going to make no forward progress. You can, you can theorize as to what it would be like to be like a newborn child and have a fresh start. But that's just in the realm of theory because as long as the ego is still on the throne manifesting and doing its thing, uh, the separation thing, then you haven't made any progress. You're not going to be able to make progress because the separation is the problem. Now, I've talked in the past about Set. I've talked about Mother Mary. What else have we talked about along this line? You know, of, of... that aspect of God which provides us safety, mm. that takes care of us, that holds us mm. in, perpetually in eternity, mm-hmm. preserves our identity and our safety. Mm-hmm. Okay, if we do not accept that there is that divine power and purpose to hold us secure forever, then we are vulnerable to our fears of being unsafe and insecure because we don't believe that we have the power to achieve or that anybody else has the desire to achieve and we don't believe that there is an aspect of God Most High which has 
as its activity to achieve our safety and security for perpetuity. So it leaves us vulnerable. So how are we going to say, even if we're an inner child, as long as we believe, okay, I'm safe, I'm safe. Well, how do you become safe? How do you stay safe in this world where, you know, I mean, uh, the coronavirus is encroaching on me and everybody has it and we don't know that anybody has it. They could all kill me. Any person that comes to me within a foot can cough on me and I can blow over and die. Okay, so what? how am I secure really at, at base? And I'm not even dealing with it. Yeah, it's just a, something that's on the news. It's not even a real phenomenon in your life. It's just something that is being reported to be a real phenomenon by other people. It's like, the sh- I, I relate it to people be a shark attack you know if they put a shark attack on tv it would drive fear into everyone and and it's true even though they're not in the water they're still terrified of jaws that's why the movie was so successful i still see we were at walmart the other day shopping and i saw a t-shirt that had jaws on it what was it 1972 they're still selling jaws i mean jaws is like a franchise like my goodness it's like the star wars franchise they're still making money off of it it's amazing but um but the thing is about shark attacks is if you look at all the shark attacks worldwide, there might be three or four, you know. I think the highest on record was maybe six or eight in a year, shark attacks worldwide. And it's like people are still deathly afraid of the sharks. And what they, what, but the thing is, these shark attacks always happen at dusk and dawn. Hmm. Do you know why? I have no idea. That's when sharks feed. So here's the thing. If you're going to get in shark-infested water during their feeding time, don't you think you're putting yourself at risk? Yes, you are. Okay, but if you get in the water after dusk or dawn or any other time besides dusk and dawn, the chances of you getting bit by a shark are reduced to zero. Okay, now that's kind of critical information. But does the news media report this critical information? No, because they're selling advertising. So they don't want to report something that would reduce the fear. They want to report things that's going to hype up the fear because that's how they sell their products and services, you see. So our culture and our society is not interested in information that would reduce the fear. They're looking to pump it up. Oh, yeah. They call themselves being interested in information and seeking information, but what they're doing is seeking the titillation of the drama of That's being it. made to fear. Oh, yeah. And then the, then you have the repeaters out there who are lapping it up, the early adopters who want to, or they get some perverse pleasure out of going and getting other people scared. Yeah. You know, I mean, the fact is, they're scared themselves, but their way of coping with fear is, to, is to, then to amplify it for others and watch other people squirm, and that somehow makes them feel better. Am I wrong? You're totally right, and and so their 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 paranoia just completely is ramped up into total psychosis. <laughs> it's amazingly, it's amazing to observe. Oh man! And then and then if, and then if two police cars whiz past the house, you know you you've got to jump out of your seat and see what's going on. The sheriff's cars, the sheriff's cars, and then you know it's like oh my god. It's just like, there's no end to this paranoia. It just goes on and on. It's like so, it's so unbelievable. So Uh, when we talk about safety, when we talk about inner child, when we talk about anything that has to do with the polyvagal theory and whether we can avoid 
autonomically shutting down. Yeah. We're going to have to realize there are irrational approaches and irrational defense mechanisms that the mind tries to use to deal with insecurity, which usually fail and usually cost in terms of mental health. Okay, and the thing that we've got to realize is we have to cut to the root and really realize when we're talking about security, what is security? How do I really be secure? If I need to be secure to avoid autonomically shutting down, in order to, if I need to be secure to be effective in the world, uh-huh. and also to help other people be secure, uh-huh. then what is the method for my being secure? First of all, it has to do with having confidence in that aspect of God with which you are joining, with which you are identifying as your beingness, as your life. If you cannot make that connection, do not expect to feel secure, in my view. You're kidding yourself. You're employing a number of devices which are shortening your tether in the long term. But, and they may make you feel better today, but they will have a price. You will pay a price. Well, this is why the Nietzsche, Nietzschean idea of camel, lion, child breaks down. Because you can get to the lion part, no problem. But getting to the child part that he envisioned that was the essential ingredient in order to bring about the Ubermesh, that doesn't work. And so, therefore, humanity is not going to then transmute and transform into some, you know, Superman. Because you're never going to become a child through the human agency. That's You're never going to become safe through human agency. You're never going to get there. Okay? It's not going to happen. this should be abundantly clear by this time in human history. We've right. never seen right. people break out of this mold. No. As long as they felt separate. No, we're stuck in a rinse and repeat of fear and paranoia. And it just doesn't go away. This coronavirus is just the latest uh, example of the very thing we're talking about. And, you know, we're on the cusp of it, but it's going to get worse. You know, the paranoia is getting ramped up by the early adopters, and they're finding pleasure in putting that out there, and everybody else is going to eat it up. And within two weeks, I would say, this entire country is just going to be totally nuts. You know, it's just crazy. Well, the goal, the goal, what is the goal? Is it is the goal to cause pain, to, to make other people afraid, or is it to say... Look at my vulnerability and be convinced. Be impressed that I am weak and vulnerable. Oh, I'm so fragile. Yes. Yeah, it's just... But see, this brings up for me, uh, you know, as I was reading the Frankel, the quotes from Viktor Frankl, the thought that comes to my mind, and in terms of this uh, corona, uh, the coronavirus and all that, is what comes to my mind is the history of hospice. And you know the history of hospice. I mean, it was the... What do you know? Tell the listeners that don't know, um, what is the history of hospice? The the whole idea of hospice really uh, came, I, I think, was really the child of a, a Elizabeth, uh, uh, what was her name, from Switzerland, mm. who uh, she 
did a tremendous, uh, she was a pioneer in research uh, of understanding the care of the dying. She she gave her whole life to uh, becoming an expert on, you know, how how to assist people through the process of dying. And so, um, and hospital, I, the word hospital comes from the same root word as hospice, right? So the, uh, if I understand correctly, there were these, um, there were these travelers, pilgrims, or that were going to Jerusalem, and they were, they would, they would get on the way back. They would be sick, or they would, and there was no way to care for them. They basically were on the side of the road, dying. And so the earliest versions of hospice or, uh, or hospitals were to set up like tents or some kind of provision. For these people who were uh, sick and dying to be able to come and die with dignity and that there were nurses there was a whole order of the catholic church of of nuns that were this was their mission right and they were serving it was kind of like mother Teresa with the lepers in india it was it was like we're going to help care for these people who were sick and dying it's it wasn't about making them well in some cases they did but they were using various methods herbs and what have you but the, the focus or the emphasis was on being able to give them human dignity up into their last breath. Is that correct? Uh, I think that's totally correct. And this was the understanding here was that you're going to... There are stages of dying. There are needs that a person in these stages goes through that, that need to be taken uh, seriously and addressed. And so the whole hospice movement was an attempt to uh, for people to learn how to uh, meet the needs that were being coming to be appreciated you know of people who were who were dying and be able to give them meet their needs with dignity dignity was one of the needs and and be able to to have an environment where they could do their uh, the, their spiritual and other work that, of tying up loose ends that they needed to do. You know. Yeah, um, and so when you compare and contrast the the work that was done by this order of nuns that that really uh, invented in this whole new form of medicine, this hospice, it became a. Up until that point, there really was nothing. Now, was this the Sisters of Providence or Sisters of Charity or what? Isn't this the group that Mother Teresa... Very possible. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a long tradition there. It precedes her, but it goes back to the early days uh, of the the, um, people doing their trips to Jerusalem. I think this was during the Crusade period, actually. Mm. So you had, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Mm. you, you had these warriors who would go fight the infidels or the Muslims in Jerusalem for, you know, and they're fighting for the cross, they're fighting for the kingdom of God, and as they understood it, and they would get wounded or whatever, and they'd find themselves uh, alongside, you know, a beggar in a tent uh, being cared for by a nun, and they're both on their way out, but they're both seen as being equally valuable to God in the eyes of the nun, and they're both going to be treated with dignity and respect, and so here you have, potentially... Uh, two people who were formerly enemies fighting each other to the bloody death 
And now something's happened. They're both on their way out. They're both suffering, uh, and there's no real, um, there's there's no modern medicine. There's there's no opiate to take away your pain. You're in the you're you're in the worst state you can imagine. But these nuns are there to give you peace through their presence and through their heart communicating to you in their facial features and their tone of voice. This is the polyvagal thing going on. And being able to help somebody to, you know, on their way out by being able to make them feel safe in spite of the fact that the body is dying, in spite of the fact that they're... That's in- literally true. That's yeah. literally the goal of this, of all that you can learn about the stages of death and dying, you know, is to be able to help the person stand securely and with dignity and be able to make the transition Mm -hmm. in a way where they're not shut down, they're able to be effective in their own life, in their mind, in their soul during this key time. Yeah. Now, compare and contrast that uh, form of Christianity, that practice, that, that Christian practice of hospitality and hospice with what we have today uh, being displayed as fear and paranoia and I don't want pneumonia and we're going to stay in this house we have two weeks of food and we're not going to go anywhere and you're not going to go anywhere and this is, you know, the whole world is going to shut down and we're going to sit here and watch it on the CNN Avidly Yes, with great enthusiasm you know knowing that we were so smart that we were able to pr- see this coming and protect ourselves from it. You know, and we'll just watch the world burn as we mm. eat Cheetos. Mm. And it's like, okay. Um, and which we got from them coming out to the car and bringing them when we went to the <laughs> store. Because <laughs> we were afraid to go in. Yeah, because we did the Walmart oh, pickup. Gosh. We got our Cheetos oh. from the Walmart pickup so oh, we could no. minimize our the threat that Exposure. is to our body. Or, yeah, we can't be exposed to the... Now, so, someone did have to bring them out, but hopefully they were wearing well, a mask. Well, they were, you know, the Cheetos were in a airtight package, and, you know, we're going to put them on the porch for a couple of days and let them air out, you know, so they'll be, you know, sanitized. Before Could we, be that you tell the person from the store, bringing out the goods, just set them down there. Yeah. After you leave, I'll <laughs> open the door oh and come out and get them. It's like a bad movie. I, <laughs> It's like a really bad movie. And it's like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh my god! And but the uh, thing is, you know, oh, this gosh. is this is where America is today, and where America is going to be two weeks from now. Okay, the, the vast majority of this country is being is is launching into this state of paranoia, and it's like, okay, now when you compare and contrast that with the faith, the true, genuine Christian faith of these nuns who were um, invented hospice it did not exist okay wow what a difference so where did their confidence come from where did their faith describe it what is it that is so lacking in the people who see themselves well, I'll involved? tell you straight away now I am not a Catholic I'm not opposed to Catholicism I am eclectic and I accept parts of Catholicism that I find eloquent and deeply meaningful. So I'm not attacking or endorsing Catholicism, per se, when I say this. But you have to realize that 
they felt secure themselves because of the rosary. They called upon Mother Mary with confidence and deep-seated confidence, and they felt that God was giving them knowledge from on high that gave them absolute certainty in their invulnerability. This is the confidence that it takes to go out into the world where people believe that they're and flaunt and and dress up the fact that and put it in neon lights. I'm so vulnerable. I'm so <laughs> you need to protect me. No one protects me. I need to be make it understood that I need protection. I need to be safe. I've never been safe enough. Okay. So that's the world that you come up in, and the person who is going to address that world, who's going to, to take care of that world, who's going to be effective in that world, and change that world, is the person who is confident in their own security. And they were, because every day they had time of going within, and spending time with God Most High and understanding that aspect of God that took care of their security, who cherished their security and their identity. And when they receive the grace from God, they simply pass it on. They're simply passing on what is already seen by them as theirs, as their own experiential truth of themselves. They're not giving something that they don't have. They're very much sharing what they have. And this is where we are all called to go, in my understanding. Those who are aware of a desire to go there, at least, are being called to go there. To say, I can understand and appreciate and be solid in my own sense of security and vitality, and invulnerability, so that I can stand up to do my work effectively to come alongside my own true self and to bring that into the world and to affect the world in every possible opportunity that I am given. And when you bring your true self alongside yourself, you at the same time are now enabled and empowered to then stand beside your holy brother and sister and support them. And because in the joining with God Most High, with uh, in, in the form of Mother Mary or any form, I don't care what the form is, if you are joining and sharing in your view with the God of your understanding, I'll call it that right now, although that isn't exactly how I see Mother Mary. I don't see Mother Mary as just a figment of your imagination. I'm not saying that. I'm saying God is really God. Well, she represents a aspect of the divine, or is a channel for an aspect absolutely, of the divine. Absolutely, absolutely. In the same way that in African spirituality, 
uh, there were different cities that represented different aspects of the divine. If you had uh, a Catholicism in Rome that was built the same way, then you'd have one city that would represent a saint and another city that might represent this saint or perhaps, you know, the Mother Mary or what have you. But in some ways they do that, you know, with, um, but it, it seems to be, that seems to be like a left brain um, process versus the ancient um, African spirituality. So there's kind of like been a progression. You can see one leading to the other in the in the left brain um, mentality. But nevertheless, I don't want to get off on that. The point is that there are aspects of the divine that have been worshipped uh, as a channel to enlightenment or in connection to the source throughout history. And people come along and they look at that and they say, oh, this is polytheism. Oh, this is they're worshiping many gods. No. Misunderstanding. Well, these same people will then say, well, I want to do my own shadow work. I have to do it independently. I have to find where my pain went back into the cracks and <laughs> pull it out. Right. Excise it and go back and relive it and all of this stuff. You know, you don't... This is what I'm saying. Are you going to spend your life trying to nurse yourself back to health when you are not your own doctor, not your own teacher? Nothing. You cannot be these things to yourself no matter how you try. You cannot be your therapist, your psychiatrist, none of this. You cannot do it. and You can do nothing alone. Nothing is done alone ever, nothing has ever been done alone because you have never been alone okay, as much as you might believe it so, the thing is, in joining you connect to that aspect of your own beingness and of God, since you are an extension of God Most High you share the same qualities and you, in truth, this is part of your beingness yeah, I like to use the term the divine self to describe that, but it's a it's the divine self of which we are a part absolutely so we have that aspect where mother mary is is deep deeply resident within us you know our own healing is planted our own security is planted deeply within us it gives the seed to the what will the plant that will sprout the rose you know, that will be able to bring salvation to the world, to us and our brothers going hand in hand back across the lawns of heaven. This is absolutely what we need to be seeing as our purpose. This gives meaning to our pain. If we are emphasizing our pain, the meaning that it comes <clears throat> is that in our security, we are working effectively, empowered by the joining, by the sharing that God gives us and calls us to, to stand with people in the physical world where we now are for this purpose. When we're achieving the work that we are here to do, from our point of view, there is meaning to our work and to our being in the physical. <clears throat> when
when we really have to grasp and reach, try to try to find meaning, like, well, I don't think this means anything. You know, you, you have to realize maybe you are in a desert of dry bones. Maybe this is a wake-up call. Maybe this is a sign of distress that you've tried to hide from or or not really be able to even respond to no matter how loud it gets. You really have to stop everything and realize because of the polyvagal theory, you are going to be shut down by your autonomic nervous system if you don't cognitively and spiritually do the work to open up and stay open. Do the work to open up and stay open. See, this is the, you know, the the, the phrase doing the work, um, I I think that most of the time when we when I hear the phrase doing the work, I realize that this is this is um, potentially an ego trip. You know, doing the work. I'm doing the work, doing the work, doing the work. Because the ego likes to latch on to doing the work, okay? But when you specify, as you just did, doing the work of opening up and being vulnerable and remaining um, connected to source and joining, doing the work of joining, right? That's what you're, that's, did I, am I saying it correctly? Totally, totally. Okay. That, that so, when you see yourself as connected to part, to source and you know completely confident in your relation to source giving you energy giving you power giving you life you know your invulnerability you know that the physical world does not define you in any kind of a way right well i can't think of a better example of doing the work of joining than these sisters who created the hospice what better example could you possibly come up with for doing the work of joining? They, they, they always have been, you know, a beacon of light in my view. They always showed people what a person could do with their life to lay it down for others. And <clears throat> the, the thing is that in our own life, if we accept as our purpose, you know, understanding and embracing our own security, opening our own root chakra, for instance, and moving up, you know, ascending spiritually by using our time to help other people feel secure, make them secure, to make them aware of their security, to give them a place to stand, and in turn they do the same for others. This is what community really is. If you talk about community, this is a place where people can help each other become and restore and reclaim their own life and each other's all together, all shared beingness, and a greater awareness of their becoming and their being 
as they remember who they are. This remembering and this reclaiming is not a function of ego, however, and that needs to be pointed out because if you know if you think you're reclaiming something you forgot and it, by using your left brain to reclaim, uh, that's that's no, no, that's the whole problem. So reclaiming means to end means to to find the uh, what has what you what your left brain has never been able to acknowledge. It's being able to connect. This is the joining. The joining is something that you have never been able to do um, as a function of left brain activity. What what we're saying here is if we come to the table just seeing what our five senses tell us empirically about this physical world, this construct, you know, that we seem to find ourselves in, and that's all we know of. The, the means and the tools are not in that to do what we need to do, what I'm talking about doing. You're talking about uh, rising from the chakras. We're talking about the heart radiating. You know, we're talking about becoming wholehearted. You know, this is like a, uh, this is like a physiological paradigm shift from the brain to the heart. You know, finding the source within yourself that then connects with others. That's the heart. The brain isn't connecting with anybody. It's not even connecting with itself. Mm, true. Totally true. It's trying to run away. It's trying to reshape, create its own, you know, reality. So there can't be any community as a result of cognitive abilities and functioning and, you know, whatever. And this is where belief is. This is why I say you have to go beyond belief. I'm, when I say beyond belief, I mean beyond your head. What's in your head? That is, there's no connection with other people or even yourself. You're in a dysfunctional state of being. You must move beyond belief. Absolutely essential. If you don't relinquish and let go of what you think you know, then how are you going to connect at the heart level? And this, uh, this goes back to the polyvagal thing because you know it's this not feeling safe that gives the the brain its its value and, and so it's it's constantly trying to enter a state of not being safe so that it can then have greater value it's like i want my left brain to be totally in control of everything so i must look for fear of things to fear and i must impose that fear on others then i'll have real meaning that's what the left brain is saying that's the insanity of it all if i can control enough if i can manipulate enough yes Maybe I'll find meaning. Maybe I'll have meaning. Well, it does. It, 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 From the point of view of the left brain, it has more meaning than ever. Once it's imposing fear on others and, and, and doing its whole thing, its ego trip thing, that is meaning for the left brain because it's ramped up. I mean, I'm sure if you were to go into, like, do an EKG, you'd see a lot of activity going on. And when there's a lot of activity going on, then uh, that's meaning. Boy, I'm being titillated. I'm being all of my functions of my left brain are full gear. That's meaning, baby. And yet the heart can be empty. It doesn't <laughs> care what the brain is doing. So there's total disconnect there, and this is dysfunction. This is just dysfunction, and the world we see is a consequence is the product of that dysfunction you know all around us we see it 
in our society. And, you know, I just gave an example of how the news media wants to play up the fear. This is just part and parcel of the whole problem. It's like, you know, that's the community of the ego, right? That's the meaning of the ego. We're going to put fear out there on the news media. You're going to lap it up. We're going to sell soap and we're going to sell televisions and we're going to sell electronic products from China. And the way we saw it is by putting up fear, fear, fear. And you're just going to suck it up and repeat it and make other people fear. And that's called a functioning society. What if we had a power failure? What if we had an EMP strike and we went months without having power and we could not get these minute-to-minute updates of the latest reasons to fear and the latest things to fear and the latest evidence of... Yeah, you know, that fearing was uh, was appropriate and necessary. Yeah, what if the internet went down and you couldn't go on Facebook and Twitter and engage in political polarization and get your dopamine hit by arguing with people and trolling other people? You know, I mean, if this whole thing, this might, like, might be the best thing that ever happened in yeah. the whole society. Oh, human, the human consciousness might spontaneously evolve into the fourth level of awareness that I don't even know what that is. It's, I mean, we could have an emergent phenomenon where we become human. If we could turn off all the electronics, we might actually become human. But there's very little chance of that happening as long as we're being living in this matrix, this virtual reality, you know, that we just all assume to be true. Oh, by the way, I sent you a, a, a link to a podcast um, the, talking about um, this very thing. And I haven't listened to it yet. Right. So, I began to, I saw the first initial moments of it, and I was hoping to... All our mouses are more broken. when I got, yeah. uh, got told that there was a powwow going on. Right, right, right. So, but this is very fascinating. Um, <coughs> the, the Eric Weinstein and his brother were t- or had a podcast where they talked about, and the, they talk about all our mouses are broken. Right. And uh, did, did you get into it at all, a little bit? I only had a couple of minutes. Oh, you have to check this right. out. This right. is like really this this goes this goes to speaking to the fact that our our what we're talking about with the um, the culture being what it is. You know the uh, uh, well. I won't get it. We'll save that for another podcast. But that's like that is really interesting. Very very interesting. Now what what does the what does he mean by saying our mouses are broke? Well, there's there's wild mice, you know, in in the wild, and then there's laboratory mice, and laboratory mice have been bred for the laboratory. Mm-hmm. The problem is they're not the same, mm-hmm. and so uh, the DNA is different, mm-hmm. and so the and I'm not a biologist and I can't explain it as well as he did, mm-hmm. but the the long and the short of it is. We've been fooling ourselves into thinking that we're that the that the pharmaceutical companies are producing um, these non-toxic things because it doesn't kill the mouse, and therefore we think it's not going to kill us. And then time and time again, it's killing us, but it's not killing the mouse. And so we've got a fundamental problem with how we test drugs and bring drugs into the market because there's a reason why these mice are not dying, wow. and the reason is because. They have cancer, and you're giving them something toxic, and it's killing the cancer and not the mouse, okay? And so as a consequence, you think that, oh, it's safe to give to humans. Wrong. And the heart is the most vulnerable. 
so people suffer from heart attacks and heart disease and it's the pharma all these pharmaceutical products are are going to are going to put the heart to rest the heart is going to go into a cardiac arrest and they didn't do that with the mouse and so they thought it was safe for the human and it isn't and this is a big problem and they did the podcast about it. It blew up. It became it went viral. Everybody's listening to it. Everybody's talking about it. But you want to know the two groups of people in our society that aren't talking about it? The news media and the medical industry. They are their their silence is deafening. They do not want to talk about it because I mean, what are we talking about here? We're talking about 20 years of of experiments that could be flawed, uh, seriously flawed. You know? Well, this would explain why so many drugs have come out and have been recalled after. Yes. Yes. So, oh, you're going to enjoy listening to that because that's right up the alley. And then we'll have to do another podcast on why our mouses are broken. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, i got to go to work, so I'm going to cut this off. Do you have any final thoughts here on this whole... I mean, what's the title of this podcast? We're talking about fear, paranoia, but then we went into the whole... Well, we're, we're talking about the inner child, so this mm. might have to do mm. with, you know, now, if, let me suggest that if we are believing in separation, we're embracing and endorsing and proclaiming separation. Mm-hmm. We are, in a way, our inner child is wanting to tantrum and scream and cry and be a child. It wants to, we want to be the child. We do not want to develop mm-hmm. into the full grandeur and power that God gave us because that would mean that we have to abandon our ego gratification for actually for spiritual mastery. And we're not even familiar with, we only know. I mean, we'd rather have the 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 monster that we know than than whatever we don't know. And all we know is, you know, the the freaking tantrum child that has to have its way and and proclaim its craziness. Yeah, so we go into that we go into that second childhood somewhere around eighty it seems to me. Mm -hmm. Just kidding. Uh, we may never leave in a way of this yeah. inner child may never leave no. childhood yeah it's and what I'm what I think the theme of this mm. is like leave childhood grow up grow up yeah yeah I mean in my in my book that I'm working I'm working with this idea of growing up waking up and showing up and you know it's it suggests that you would do one first in the in the next second and the third third but really it's it's all of these things need to happen simultaneously. You need to grow up, wake up, and show up at the same time. I mean, these nuns who were showing up for people who were dying to help them have dignity in their last breath, in their last moments, they were showing up. And why were they? The, they were repeating a very common, commonly repeated phrase in Catholicism is... The love of Christ compels me. Uh Why am I doing this? Because I have been called to identify with Christ. Uh Okay, I see myself 
as united with and totally bonded with Christ, Christ consciousness, higher self, divine self, all of these things. I know this to be my truth. Okay, if I don't know this to be my truth, then I am not going to be able to move beyond where my inner child needs to be the drama queen. Okay. I can say that I'm, I've done all kinds of religious activities, meetings, duties, all this, even been in ministry or anything. But if I have not moved into an identification with God Most High in, in the person of Christ, Christ Consciousness, as I understand it, then I am not moving powerfully away from my insecurity, and as a result, my autonomic nervous system is constraining and limiting me, and I'm actually trying to use defense mechanisms of the mind to overcome it, and they, in fact, are limiting me even further. Do I want to be, or do I not want to be? That is the question. Well, and, and so if, if the answer is yes, then <clears throat> the only way that that truly, as far as I know and as far as you know, the only way that that truly can be is if the love of Christ compels me. That's right. It compels me to arise from my belief in my own brokenness and limitations. It compels me to arise from my complaints about the meaninglessness of my pain. It compels me to arise to where I can stand with my holy brother and sister, side by side and hand in hand, and progress through life into eternity. Yeah. Yeah, there is no other source. You know... I mean, you might practice uh, a Buddhist meditation every day and you really do focus on compassion and you really do focus on uh, being grateful. And by focusing on those qualities of the human nature, you're able to then uh, find it within yourself to be able to love other people and to be able to be experience that reciprocal opening. But that is nevertheless an element of the divine self and so you are being compelled uh, by the love of Christ whether you acknowledge it or not because Absolutely. you're still working with uh, uh, an aspect of the divine most high as it's as you're choosing to meditate on that particular you know compassion and so that's an element or an aspect of, of the divine that you're tapping into so um, even if we know that aspect is say Kuan Yin or we use other words yeah you can use whatever term you want to um, the point is that the divine uh, has many different aspects and many different manifestations, and this is why in the ancient world um, it was had was symbolically and figuratively represented by different uh, um, what white people today would call gods, right? And so there was a god for this and a god for that, but these are understood to be aspects of the divine. The same thing with Hinduism. You know, you you've got you know if you know, Hinduism, there's like how many uh, uh, 
you know, billion people over there. And so how many gods do they have? They have a god for every person, basically. I mean, there's millions, literally millions and millions of gods. Um, and, and it, But if you talk to a cab driver who comes from India and is well-versed in, in um, this, you know, what it means to be a Hindu, and he'll tell you, oh, yeah, there, there's not many gods. There's really only one true right, god. Right. Okay? And so, I mean, I, I've done this with cab drivers. I do it routinely. Anytime I talk to a tra- cab driver for India, I'll ask them that question, and they'll say, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's one god, but it's just many different. So if the cab driver knows it, and not just one cab driver, but I've done this three or four times when I was in New York at different places. I would ask these cab drivers, and they'd all, they all said the same thing. Oh, yeah, it's just one god, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, if the cab driver knows it, why the heck don't the academics at the top of the quote-unquote education system know it? Why are they still insisting that it's many gods? Just like they do with Kemet and the ancient uh, African spirituality and various other... I mean, it's just, it's a fraud. It's, it's purely uh, fraudulent be able to, to put this out there and say that we white people are the only people who have the one God, you know. The people that always have an agenda to limit access to understanding and knowledge are the ones that most crow about <clears throat> being open <clears throat> to understand and learn. How they love learning, how they love philosophy. Well, philosophy, Sophia meaning wisdom, but yeah. I mean, how do you love of wisdom? They how, they absolutely love wisdom. Well, they might like they like knowledge, but where's the wisdom? You know, if you can't integrate it, if you've taken knowledge and you've re- subdivided it into category this called mathematics, category called this called biology, and pretty soon you have experts, you know, in one field or another, and then you have engineers that their job is to fix the website. But they can't fix it without a product manager. A product manager has to come along and tell him, oh, we need to fix this. Then the engineer is able to use, go and solve the problem. But he wasn't able to identify the problem because he's so expert that he can't see the forest for the trees. And this is the problem with this expertism. You know, we have plenty of experts running around. You know, the president always was fond of saying, I'm going to have experts around me. I'm going to have an expert. Everyone that's going to be in my administration is going to be an expert. And I'm like, well, you don't need experts. You need wisdom. They didn't last for long, any of them. They didn't have expertise with staying power. Well, you know, um, there has been no collusion. There is no collusion. There has been no collusion. All right, so now that we know there's no collusion, um, let's get some more experts in here and do it, keep doing the same. You keep, keep pushing the cart along, even though the wheels have fallen off. Um, Oh boy. Yeah, but that is the problem. We we esteem experts, but we don't esteem wisdom. And when you talk about philosophy, it's just so much nonsense. What happened what would happen in our life if one day we realized, you know, I really do love wisdom. Well, again, you would have to connect the source because that's you know, right. That's what you would do. That's exactly what you would do. And this is what Krishnamurti. This is what set Krishnamurti apart because he would say, if you ask him a question, he'd say, "Okay, let's look at it. Let's observe this." And then he would close his eyes and he would pause. And what he was doing, he explained on many occasions, 
what he was doing was he was going to other what she referred to as intelligence to get the information download it so he could like okay because he wasn't going within himself in the you know his left brain ego thing doing what it does accumulate gathering wisdom because of all the accumulated knowledge no there was something other his inner guidance his inner light it's the revelation that he was missing yeah and he says we, you know they tried to set him up as a savior and he says look you don't need saviors you've had you've had plenty of saviors throughout history you don't need more saviors or redeemers what you need is um, to find the light within and when he says light within that's not to be misunderstood as like you're going into the left brain to find wisdom that's not where it is it, it, the light within is being able to join with the divine that's the light within the problem with why he's saying that about had enough saviors is because we want then to make the savior the one that goes within and does the inner work Mm. instead of us and it cannot happen we have got to do the one be the one who goes within and understands our motivation and our purpose and our intention and our alignment and commits, translates that into devotion. So you have free will, which means you have to do the work. But you can do the work, you can do the wrong work in a million different ways. So doing the right work means joining. There it's where the free will comes into contact with the divine. That's That's where the rubber meets the road. Understanding the shared nature of being through Mm -hmm. God the Father, the Creator, and all of its creation. And and not having this irrational ego fear that you're going to lose your identity or you're going to be sucked up into some, you know, uh, collective consciousness where you no longer have any meaning. Your meaning is lost because your identity is lost. It's actually the opposite. This is like emphasizing the... the, Even if I join, I'm still going to emphasize my... My basic insecurity. I, if I if I go before God, I'm going to first of all protest my vulnerability. Oh God, I can't I can't experience wow. my invulnerability by sharing and joining because I want you to understand that I'm so vulnerable. <laughs> well, th- you're putting your finger on something huge here. So. Part of the reason why people don't commune with God is because there is this unspoken fear that by by joining with the divine, they're going to somehow lose their identity. Isn't this interesting? When when actually, it is God Most High that has actually retained and preserved our identity. It is our intention for separation. It is our attempt to understand our the entire scope of our life mm-hmm. and our existence as we see it as separate, which has threatened our identity. Well, it keeps us bound in hell, that's for sure. It I mean... keeps us cut off from awareness of ourselves. It keeps us completely, experientially unaware of our identity. And we're blaming it on God. Like, oh, God would take my identity. 
Right. No, actually, you took yeah. your own idea. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. That's huge. That's huge. So you have heaven, and you can join in heaven. But the reason people are opposed to this idea, they may pay lip service to it on Sunday morning. Oh yeah, but they're not. If the bus outside said on the way to heaven, they're not going to get on the bus. They're just going to pay lip service to it during the service and shake the pastor's hand as they walk out the door, and they're just going to turn a blind eye to the bus that says we're going to heaven. Oh, they're going to even wave it by. Go yeah, on, yeah, go on. Don't right. stop for me. Right, because heaven is something to fear. Why? Because it means loss of who you are, and you're attached to who you are, your identity of who you are. You like being the guy who sits in front of the computer learning the most fearful things in the world. Oh, coronavirus. Awesome. I'm going to sit here for a couple hours and just suck it in so I can spit it out. My precious. My precious. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's so sick, but it's true. It's so true. And so the thing is, to come into uh, joining means to relinquish not just your it's not relinquishing of of your identity or your free will but it's relinquishing of the ego's need for um the uh, false the false the false self that wants to project the narrative this narrative onto others and you know to thrive on fear and to impose it on others and manipulate this way and to get the whole thing yes i mean uh it's like wow and then there's other people who are just following in that in that train of thought and they too are not eager to jump on board the train you know because they've been influenced with this fear to think that they should fear and that's normal so you know the move in the matrix is so interesting to me because it portrays that you know there are forces that have created a matrix in which we are trapped and deceptively so so that we cannot take it on Mm -hmm. and yet look how wholeheartedly we manufacture and sustain a matrix of our own making and doing and try to have it define us and completely uh, yeah it's a self become matrix. our whole existence that's really see that so there's a there's this idea that the matrix is a false authority outside of ourselves that's a, an illusion that's been pulled over our eyes to deceive us okay but then what about this false authority within that's creating its own matrix? How about yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely about creating that? a false authority. Yeah. And sustaining it and yeah. planning it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, now this is the this is the core uh, false authority. This is the core matrix that it, seldom if ever talked about. But this is what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so I'm just going to close it here. And I'm glad we brought up the hospice because it's, it's one thing to talk about the core matrix and describe the problem, but it's another thing to be able to point to an example of someone who says, the love of Christ compels me. I can't think of a better example. Right. And this is like, and that is what, you know, when you compare and contrast that with the fear and the paranoia going on today in America over this coronavirus, you know, I mean, what a contrast that is. And it's the layers of the matrix, you know, the, the layers of the matrix that people are, are caught up in. And the only, the only viable way of connecting uh, to the source and, and back to the divine and being able to find the true spiritual homeostasis and peace and joy and happiness and radiating love to others is to be able to come into that connection with the aspect of God, whether it be... Uh, whichever aspect you might choose, but it ultimately to be able to manifest into the world 
the love of Christ. The cry to heaven, which is going to be, God is going to see your nakedness when he hears your cry saying, I'm afraid that God is going to take away from me what little I have. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. The, the yes. joining mm. with God Most High mm. that understands invulnerability mm-hmm. and understands magnificence mm-hmm. is absolutely the joy of heaven and the power of heaven mm-hmm. that says, I live. I join with life, I embrace life, I choose life for myself and others. Uh Uh And in that is my heroism, is my significance, is my meaning. Uh The beautiful. Absolutely. You just beautifully described the beautiful. Thank you, Meryl. We don't need to be laboring with the ideas of good and true. This is the ego occupation. But to enter into that space of being in harmony with the divine is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. And that is where we need to reside. And I'm saying that, you know, this idea that we need to grow up, wake up, and show up is if there are three stages of life that we have to spend 20 years on each one. No. We can work on all these all the time, and we should. But, you know, they, one is benefiting the other, right? Why not show up before you grow up? You know? Why not? Because doing that is going to accelerate the growing up and the waking up. But people think that they can't show up until they first no. grow up, until they first wake up, and then that never happens. Right. It, it's, it gets used by the ego to stall. Right. So that the ego can retain its control. Yeah, that's it. So once you get a picture of the beautiful, why wouldn't you want to abide there and reside there? There's no reason not to. No, it's in our it's our inheritance. It is the gifts of God that enable us to to occupy our own creation. 